Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. Before we begin, just a few quick announcements. We have our Patreon set up. You can join for as low as a dollar a month or for $3, you get direct access to the content that we create. You can make suggestions for upcoming shows and uh, all, all the money, all the proceeds go to making this the best show possible. So thank you for that. We're also participating in Dry February, which is where we're going to stay sober for 28 days. And it's not just for feeling good and in, in, in our own personal enjoyment, but it's to help raise awareness for cancer research. Jesse Henning personally knows somebody who is going through cancer treatment and that they that with a little bit of money, with some money, those donations will help in researching and combating this disease. So all donations go directly to that and to supporting this family in their fight against cancer. We will have links for this donation on our site as the days progress, as well as updating you how dry February is going. Today's guest is Tommy Dalbog. Tommy is the host of Strength Through Vulnerability, a podcast uh, that's aimed towards helping men understand confidence, men, anybody, but it started with men, uh, understand confidence, vulnerability, mental health, examining their purpose, and to starting conversations around all of these subjects uh, and, and just the importance of being who you are and not who other people want you to be. I had a wonderful conversation and I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. All right, we have with us Tommy Dahlborg with us. Tommy, how you doing? Rob, I'm doing really well, man. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm pumped to have a conversation with you. Uh, me too, man. I uh, I love the name of your show, Strength Through uh, Through Vulnerability. Tell me, tell me a little bit about the name behind this. Oh yeah, show. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for letting me share that. It's something I'm really passionate about, and so. You know, I'll start off right off the bat. I started this podcast called Strength Through Vulnerability back in January 2020. Um, didn't realize how good of a year to start a mental health podcast it would be. Uh, <laughs> so kind of lucked out there. And um, if I'm being completely transparent, the original name was the Tommy Dahlborg podcast. That's what I started out as. And Luckily, my marketing genius of an older sister stepped into my life and was like, hey, like nobody knows Tommy Dahlborg yet. Like, no offense, but right. people don't know who Tommy Dahlborg is. But Emphasis if you make it a, on the yet. Yeah, exactly. And so she was like, but if you make the title of your podcast something that's going to reel people in, it's going to help with listenership. And so I was very briefly thinking of what possible names there could be. And I very quickly came to Strength Through Vulnerability. The reason for that is because through my life, I have found that vulnerability is the key to everything we really want in life. And it's also often perceived as a weakness. I think especially as men, right? Yes. That was a big area for me when I was, um, when I was making this podcast is I'm a guy and I'm talking about how vulnerability is a strength. And that's not what we're taught when, we're, when we grow up or when we watch James Bond or any of these you know, action movies, right? 
And so uh, to give you a little taste of, of how I came to believe that vulnerability is so powerful, um, a story I often use with people is something that led to me making this podcast. And it was, um, I was 21 years old, senior in college. And I was really, you know, my anxiety had come to its peak. It, it came, it was the height of my anxiety. And uh, it was starting to show physically in terms of my hands, my arms were trembling. There were moments in the middle of the night where I'd wake up having a straight up panic attack and my heart was pumping out of my chest. My bed was just a pool of sweat. It was disgusting, man. It was so gross. And, um, and it was scary. I thought I was going to die. I thought I was going to have a heart attack or something. And so I ended up just having so much pain from this anxiety that I really had a couple choices, I guess. One, I had the thought of, okay, I don't want to live if I'm going to live the rest of my life feeling like this. So there's a couple things you could do. You could take your life, which was, I guess, a possibility. Um, or you can reach out and ask for help, right? You can, you can share with your, somebody your story. And so luckily I chose that option and I opened up to my girlfriend at the time and, uh, and it was a beautiful moment. I remember just sharing, not everything, but a little bit about what I was feeling, uh, what thoughts were going on in my head, what physical symptoms I was having. And that conversation unleashed a whole nother part of this girl's story that I hadn't known yet. And it was that years prior to this, she was actually struggling with anxiety, incredibly, incredibly bad. In fact, she, she had still struggled with her anxiety. She had to go and seek out professional help from a psychiatrist. It was best for her. It was deemed the right thing for her to be prescribed medication to help her with her anxiety. So at that point, she was on medication for her anxiety, and I had no idea. And now I'm getting to learn all these different things about her. And I left that conversation feeling heard, feeling understood, feeling like I wasn't alone. And that, I always do air quotes, let me feel like I had permission to go and seek out professional help myself. And that's what led me towards seeing a psychiatrist. I, I now see a counselor and learning more about how to handle my anxiety in healthy ways. And along the way, I've, you know, as I've healed, I've used my story and, and some of the things I've learned to help others. And you just continue, continue to see the ripple effect of vulnerability. So that was, so, that was a long answer, man. I'm sorry. Hey, I love long answers <laughs> and I'll listen to them. Uh, <laughs> So when, when you think about this, you sort of had this breaking moment, this, uh, this aha moment when you shared your story and that, that kind of empowered you and made you realize you weren't alone. What was it that, that gave you the anxiety? What was, what was it in your life that you experienced? Mm, it's a huge question, man. And, uh, you know, I think if you ask anybody who struggles with anxiety, it's going to be a different answer, obviously. Yes. Um, I think that I'm somebody who doesn't necessarily process anxiety naturally as well as other people. So the little things can can get to me or they used to get to me more. Um, but the, the biggest thing, the biggest force for my anxiety was I later found out I have OCD. And so... I have, I believe they call it, there's a bunch of subtypes of OCD. I believe they call the one that I have pure OCD. Mm -hmm. Essentially what that means is that I don't have any physical compulsions, like the excessive hand washing or needing to say a certain word before you enter a room. My compulsions are all mental. They are like ruminating, constantly thinking, over analyzing the scary thoughts going on in my head, um, as well as rationalizing why maybe 
some scary thought that I had couldn't possibly be true or why that wouldn't be true about me. And you kind of go on this endless cycle of basically trying to convince yourself that something's not true. You succeed for a little bit, but then when the intrusive thought comes back, all that anxiety comes right back at you. And so for years, this is something that I was struggling with and would try do my best to push it under the rug, rationalize myself through it. And as they kept coming back over the years, it got more and more powerful. And then that senior year in college is when it reached its peak. Now, since so, and and please correct me if I'm wrong here, because mm. you know I'm 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 asking you questions about yourself, and I could be completely wrong. Yeah, it, it sounds like there was these intrusive thoughts that you were sort of at the mercy to, and that's what made up this uh, this anxiety, this this sort of this mental experiences that you were having. And then since sharing, because I think for a lot of guys growing up in, you know, in, in our society, we think like, we got to be stoic. We got to keep it in. Mm -hmm. At least that's how it was for me. And, and keeping these things in and not sharing them. But once you start to share them, it's almost like they lose the power. They, They just lose power in being able to control us. Is that what you sort of found? Is that by, sharing your story and sharing your experiences that you actually became more powerful than your OCD. Oh God. Yeah. I think that's really well said. And uh, something I would add to it is, are you familiar with the work of Brene Brown? Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, Yeah. dude. She's, she's unbelievable. Um, So something she says is that shame is the killer or no empathy is the killer of shame. And And so when we share these things that are causing shame, and you can imagine these intrusive thoughts that are threatening what I believe to be true about myself and about the world, those were inducing shame. And so when those thoughts are shared with someone and met with empathy, you immediately realize that these things that you thought defined you, that you thought were were something to be ashamed of, are actually not. Because somebody else is hearing you and being mm-hmm. like, I see what you're saying. I see what you're going through. In fact, maybe I've even felt what you feel. And I want to let you know that it's okay. And I love when Pete, when I start talking about this, I love using this example of um, when I transitioned from seeing a psychiatrist to going to a counselor, it was, I loved my psychiatrist. Unfortunately, my insurance wasn't covering it. So I had a big bill to pay. And then I had to, <laughs> I had to figure out another option, but yeah, um, they're not free. They're not, they free. are not free. They're not free. Um, if only they were, but um, so when I was transitioning to go see that counselor, I remember I, I connected with somebody who specialized in OCD. And in fact, I found out that she, from her, that she um, had OCD herself, that she struggled with intrusive thoughts herself. And so my first time going to see her, which this was obviously pre-COVID, um, I remember, you know, she said, hi, she greeted me. She was very sweet as we sat down. She also had two adorable dogs in the office too, which like made it that much better. That helps, um, yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, after petting the dogs for a little bit, I remember she started the conversation off by saying, hey, before you share what you're going through, I just want to let you know what kind of thoughts I've struggled with before. And she opened up by talking about the intrusive thoughts she struggled with. And they weren't necessarily the ones that I've struggled with. However, they were just as powerful. And her Mm. experience was very related. So as soon as she shared that, I felt like I had the privilege or the ability to share mine too. I felt like the person who was listening to me had an understanding of the feelings that I had. 
And that was so helpful in, in allowing that conversation to happen. So that's when it comes to healing for OCD, but really anything else that we're struggling with that's shame inducing, I like to believe, and I, I don't just like to believe, I believe it to be truth that that's step one. So you got to find somebody who you trust, who can, who's going to show you empathy, who, who has understanding of what you're going through. And once you know, once you have that, you know that you're not alone. And by knowing you're not alone, you are now in a position to take action. Because a lot of times when we're, when we're ashamed, we're trying to hide whatever it is. I, I didn't want to tell anybody what thoughts I was having, right? Why would I if it was causing me shame? And if I'm constantly hiding it, then I'm obviously never proactively trying to fix it or heal it. And, and we do get attached to these, these feelings, right? I mean, it, it becomes yeah. what we know. So it becomes, therefore, hard to give up. Yeah. What's the alternative? Mm, absolutely. It's like, it's very human nature-esque in, in the sense of you kind of, you can, I don't want to say get comfortable with it because the anxiety and shame I felt was not comfortable by any means, but you get used to it. Yeah. And sometimes you, you feel like there is no other way. In fact, those were the thoughts I was having before that conversation with my girlfriend is, am I going to feel like this for the rest of my life? I don't want to live to be 90 if this is how I'm going to feel. And luckily, again, I ended up going the route of, of sharing. And there's just so much power in that, man. And have you found that by you being vulnerable and sharing your story that the, the, the men that you talk to, they become more open. Like mm. how, how, how have you found that with engaging in other guys? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. I would say right off the bat that I've had people from sharing my story, from putting content out there, be it videos, podcasts, blogs, whatever. I've had people who I've known from the past who maybe I had a solid relationship with them or, or maybe not that would reach out to me and, and share something that's going on with them or, or ask me maybe how they can deal with a certain situation or the, it's interesting that once I share my story, another dude or, or woman as well has the, uh, has the understanding that it is totally okay for them to share their story too. Well, they, it's that, a trust, I think too. I think you're absolutely right. I think because they know that, you know, if I'm putting my story out there, then I'm somebody that they can trust to share their story with because I'm not going to go and exploit them when I'm already kind of, you know, in, in some sense, exploiting myself. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's what's incredible about this whole thing, the, the podcast, but really just the connecting with all these different people from my past, but also new people like you too, is that when you implement vulnerability into your life, when you, you, when you really embrace it, the relationships you build are that much better. You, you, get to, you get to know people at a deeper heart level so much quicker. And I, I like to say that in this podcasting world, especially, you know, a lot of times before we record, like we'll have a 15 minute conversation, right? Um, that's what you and I had. And in 15 minutes, normally, of talking to somebody you like probably don't even know anything about them. You might know what their job is and that they have a family or something, but that's it. I found that by embracing vulnerability and talking about these deep, powerful things that my relationships have gotten so much better. I feel like my connection with people like you or other people who have come on my show is so much stronger than the random person that you just talk about your work with for 15 minutes. You know, a lot of times it's, I'm closer to people I've interviewed for 45 minutes than I am with people I grew up with. 
Isn't that interesting too? I mean, I've, I've said this to people that I work with that there's a difference between when it comes to friendships and relationships, quantity and quality. Like you could have mm. known somebody for, you know, you're 30 years old, 20 years, you know, and, and, and maybe that's your close friend because of the duration of time you've known them. But mm. you could also just meet somebody and where you are in your life and where they are in their life. You have a strong connection, mm. right? And you yeah. can understand them on a level. And, and that's why I love what you say about sharing things and, and showing to people, demonstrating to people, you know, you're, you're putting your neck out there, literally, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, here I am, right? You know, mm-hmm. come at me kind of thing. This, this is who <laughs> I am. And people say, wow, you know, and in the expression of it's, we're not the same, but there's some similarities mm. and the world needs more of that, right? Less of we're different, I'm different, but more of despite our our differences, we are more similar than anything, mm. right? And yeah. I think that, that that plays a part in this whole, because what you're describing to me is, is a more intimate connection with the person, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Less superficial and more intimate. And I, I believe that's what's lacking in the world. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, I heard this interesting thing. We'll bring up Brene Brown again. It was on her Dare to Lead podcast. And forget the name of the guy she was talking to. But he was he's a Pulitzer Prize winner. So he's a, he's a historian. He's a writer. And um, they were talking about the little minute details that you put into either your written stories of people of long, long ago or your own story. And they were talking about how the more specific you get, the more relatable your story is, which is, it almost sounds counterintuitive, right? Um, You would think that, you know, if I'm more specific, there's more things for people to not be able to relate to. But the example that they gave was, they were talking about how, I don't remember the dates that um, Pearl Harbor got bombed, but they were talking about the Pearl Harbor bombing. And they were saying how, you know, when, when this historian was writing his book about it, he didn't say on... June 18th, 1942, mm-hmm. whatever day it was. Yeah. Um, people who are listening to December are st- 16th, 1941. No way. I think, well, maybe not today, but anyways, it, it was, I'm pretty sure it's December 1941. Holy cow. That's really cool. All right. Sweet. Yeah. I was going to say, all the, anyways, yeah, 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 and, yeah. And all the historians listening are probably like, damn, this dude really needs to know his US <laughs> history better. Um, but anywho, he was saying, no, I don't, I don't write that. I yes. write Sunday, December, whatever, 1941. Because he was saying that not everybody can relate to December 19th, 1941. A lot of people aren't, weren't alive then. Yeah. But everybody can Sunday. Everybody can relate to Sunday. I thought that was such a cool example. So I'm like, when I'm telling my story – the nuanced details, maybe they don't necessarily relate directly to somebody, but they can find themselves in that story. They can, they maybe don't, don't have the same experience, but they can relate to the emotions that are behind that experience. And I, I think that there's so much power in that. And, and I think too, like the best movies, 
as a teenager, I was super impressionable, right? So I'd, I'd watch mm. movies like The Punisher and stuff like that. Mm. Like, That's what it means to be a man, right? <laughs> yeah. That is not what it means to be a man. Anyways, because he was, he was very stoic and just went around and, you know, murdered people and stuff. And yeah. like, that's not how you solve the problem. Yeah. But you watch these films and when they, when they show these parts of them, like them with their family, and, and they're not just like static characters those are the best characters in films, mm. right? Like you think about, oh, I, it's so easy to make a villain that is just hateable, but to make a villain where you're like, whoa, I can kind of see the humanity in this person. Mm. Those make for great characters, right? Yeah. Just like that. Like, what do we have in connection with these people? Like when I hear, you know, George Clooney's biography or something like that, and he talks about making a billion dollars. <laughs> it's like I, I don't really connect with that but then yeah. him talking about being in a, in a in a motorcycle accident which he was in a motorcycle accident and almost dying and and then you're like whoa this guy is just as human as me yeah right? yeah dude that's so good i love that you said that because when we hear somebody else's story we never relate to or are inspired for the most part by the successes it's always the failures or it's always the low points, right? Yeah. I think back on my story too. I'm inspired by the very things that defined where where I was projected to go, right? Or projected to go in terms of when I look back on my story, the things that made up who I am, or at least largely put me in this direction of starting this podcast, embracing vulnerability, sharing this message, were those low moments. It wasn't the day that I got an A on a test. It wasn't the day that I hit my first home run, you know? It was the day where I was feeling like I was having a heart attack in the middle of the night. Right. You know, that's the thing I remember. And I think when it comes to other people's stories, that is very much the same. It's very much the truth that we connect with the, the low points because those are the human low points. We all can identify with the feelings that those people were having in those moments, whether we've had that exact situation or scenario happen or not. Well, yeah. I, failure is the greatest teacher, mm. right? You don't learn much if you're always successful, yeah. right? Like, I, what, what do you, like, wow, everything always works out for me. You, you people <laughs> talk like that and you're like, uh, okay. <laughs> you learn the most from failure. Mm. And for whatever reason, uh, as someone who works in schools, you see that people try to remove the natural consequences from kids. You know, they, they, they protect them from any opportunity at failing. And that is not building resilient people. And I know that that's another theme in your show is building resilience. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely, man. That's, uh, that's huge. And something I, I'm really passionate about is you, you need to provide the opportunity for failure or else, like you said, they're not, people aren't going to be able to learn. I actually was watching a video earlier today really well done Ted talk. And, uh, it was about like the super Mario effect. This guy was, talking I saw about, the caption, but I haven't seen the video. So I'm, I, you I, got me interested. You, you should definitely watch it. It's good. And he was talking about how he did this test, right? Where he was trying to make an easy, fun game for people to learn how to, how to code. And what people didn't know was that there are two versions of this test. One version after you, you failed or didn't complete it, it would say, try again, and there would be no other consequences. And then the other version of the game, of the test, said, you lost five life points. You're down to 195. 
you only have you only have 195 left. And he found that more people actually completed the 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 one that you didn't have a that if you failed there weren't consequences, right? Uh, that there wasn't a certain amount of points that you could possibly lose. Let me let me rephrase that. So the yeah. one the one where there were no consequences was the one that people succeeded at more. I thought that that was a little interesting. I believe his data. I think he presented it really well, but I was contemplating, I'm still kind of thinking about it. And because I believe what you said, failure is the greatest teacher. If we never provide somebody the opportunity to fail, then they won't learn. They won't be able to build resilience. But he's almost, the, the talk was basically saying the more we can gamify life, the more we can have the person focusing on the end result rather than the fear of failure, mm. the better off they'll be. And so I think there's kind of a distinction there, right? Is there's this fear of failure versus this opportunity to fail. And so both can and do exist 100%, but perhaps we need to focus more on, I guess, focusing on the solution, the result. Um, when it comes to building resilience, for example, you know, nobody wants to fail, but I think that the more that you do fail, the more you realize it is a stepping stone. It's a, it's a part of this whole life process, this journey, and you start to embrace it more. But I think it's the people who are so afraid to fail that they don't take those steps to fail and therefore can't build that resiliency because they're never failing. I a really long-winded response. No, I, I, dude, I love it. I love the long, I love the long answers. That's what a podcast is. Uh, it's not meant to be, you know, little sound clips, thirty <laughs> seconds true. longs, and you're like, wow, oh, like, 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 like. But there is a degree of, and and I think you're kind of tapping into it. In my life, I've been a perfectionist. Yeah. You know, and people would be like, they who know me, they're like, you're a perfectionist. Yes, I am. And that has actually stopped me from finishing or starting things that are meaningful to me because I'm a, I just want to do it perfect. I don't mm. want to make mistakes. Now I'll go back to the sort of the video game analogy. Have you ever heard of the game Dark Souls? Yes. I, okay. I don't know if I've played Super it, hard I video game, super hard video game. I, I'm not good at it, but <laughs> you know, super hard. And then you got your Call of Duty or whatever and like anybody could breeze by it. <laughs> the point of what I'm saying is that what one is more rewarding? Did you ever play The Sims? Oh, I think I was too young for that. Okay, okay. So I, I remember playing for like a split second. I made my guy pee on like the floor. <laughs> I thought it was great. I was like four years old. But anyways, go what, ahead. In The Sims, you know, you, you get a job and you do all this stuff. Or you can enter in the cheat code and you just keep getting money. And you don't mm. have to do anything. But if you do that, the game becomes like it just loses its value. Like it's just not interesting. It gets boring mm. because mm. you're just given it. Yeah. And I'm trying to stretch this on to life, right? What's more rewarding? Yeah, my, my, I think my daughter just woke up. So, but it's okay. <laughs> I got somebody help me out. But what is more rewarding, right? Is it like if we just have everything given to us versus we have to work for things, what is more meaningful? Mm, absolutely, man. It's, it's when you have, when you earn it, when you risk failure, yeah. when you fail and you, you keep getting up and you finally attain whatever it is you're going for. You made me think of when I was in high school, I think uh, Grand Theft Auto 5 came out 
And uh, I remember used to play with my friends all the time. And then one day we came across this cheat code that gave you like $300 million online or something like that. So that you could just buy whatever car or tank, whatever it is that you yeah. wanted. We, we made our cars fly, which that was fun. Don't get me wrong. Like the whole experience was fun for a little bit, but you're right. It got really boring really quick. And so I absolutely, I think, you know, obviously this is a video, we're making a video game or a relation between life and a video game. If we're talking GTA five be a pain in the ass to try to get $300 million legitimately. Right. It was also super boring after like a week of just having $300 million from a cheat code. So I think there's like a balance somewhere in there. Yes. Right. And I found that for me in life, when I, when I, I fail at something or when I'm in pursuit of something and maybe it's just not going the direction I want it to go, or it's not growing, like I want it to grow. I've found that if I can just, I guess to go back to that guy who did that Ted talk, if I can gamify it a little bit, gamify life in terms Mm. of if I can just spot that little bit of sunshine that's there, like what have I accomplished? I might've failed at this, or maybe it's not looking like what I wanted it to look like, but what have I done? What success is there or what's just out of my reach? What's just outside of my grasp. And that has been something that helps me to continue to grow and evolve too. I think it's almost like if you're working out, right. And you know you have, I don't know, you're supposed to do 50 push-ups in a, in a set. And you're at push-up number 20. And you're like, oh, damn, I got 30 <laughs> more to go, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Versus once you're at number 45, you're like, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Mm. It's only five left. Then I'm done. And perhaps in your pursuits in life, you're not ever necessarily going to be done until you, until you die. But um Go ahead. Here's, here's the weird thing about me is that as I get closer to the finish line, that's actually mm. when it becomes harder for me, or at least historically, like mm. in my undergrad, you know, I was doing my last paper and I was just so like, I don't know, buzzing or whatever. Mm. I, I, I was afraid of the end. And maybe that's because I was afraid of what would come from it. Again, mm. going back to, we are attached to what we know, whether it's good or it's bad change we do fear change i mean i fear success right like well what Mm. what are the consequences of success you know yeah that's another change and really in life it's just a matter of you you can look at everything in life as a sacrifice if you're living you you'll have to make sacrifices because you'll have to make choices opportunity costs for everything exactly yeah absolutely it's, I heard this interesting sort of, it's not really a stat, but this concept, if you will, talking about successful businesses, uh, you know, family businesses. Mm. And it's not the second generation where companies come into problems. It's oftentimes the third generation. Hmm. Have you ever heard of this? No. Enlighten so, me, please. So the first generation, they start up the company. So let's say it's, you know, General Motors. This isn't the actual history, but it's, it's General Motors. The guy starts up the company. He, it's his, you know, it's his lifeblood. He builds it up. His son comes into it. He helps his son into it, sort of shows him the way, grows it. And then the company is very successful and all they know is success. And then the, the, the owner's son's son or daughter or whatever they take over but they've never known the hardships and because of that they they struggle 
right? Mm. And there's numerous reasons why. Maybe it's because, you know, the the company can only expand so much, whatever it may be. But oftentimes it's this third generation. And it makes me think about really successful families and some of the troubles that the kids have, Mm. right? Like sometimes having everything, you know, sometimes having everything you want is just not what you need. Yeah. It's not what you really want. No. Yeah. Dude, that's so interesting. Oh, please keep you on. Well, I I was, because I'm a counselor and I was speaking to this kid that I work with and, you know, I'll keep her anonymous, obviously, but very successful family, very rich, you know, in terms of money. And you know what she said she wanted most of all for Christmas was just to see her dad. Because she never sees her dad. It's like she's, you know, only sees her mom. Her dad's working all the time. Mm. And that just brought so much into focus for me in my life. Dude, my heart's like breaking over here. Yeah. That's, like we said earlier, there's opportunity costs for everything. And sacrifice. I think there's sacrifice. And, you know, one thing that I've talked about a bit on my podcast is dreams. And like, what does it mean to dream big? I think a lot of times people, you know, associate that with like having a ton of followers, making a ton of money, being like, you know, publicly out in the open like a celebrity but everybody has dreams everybody can dream big it just doesn't always have to look like that and i think people need to know that right like when i think about what does it mean for me to dream big well i need to get in touch with my heart and be vulnerable with myself and 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 the world and not accept the world's definition of success necessarily or what the world's definition of what dreaming big is what does it mean to me and that's something, for example, that I know to be true about me. I want to be there for my kids. Mm-hmm. I I would rather make less money and be around my children and be able to see them grow than be at work making $50 million a year, you know? Um, and while like having the money and financial security would obviously be nice, yeah. and that is a dream of mine. I want financial security. It doesn't need to, need to mean that you're rich, right? Um but I think that you're so right is when these wealthy families, <clears throat> um, when their kids are growing up and everything's just handed to them, they missed all the hardships, the, the challenges that the parents had to face and they don't necessarily experience them. But then kind of on the back end, they experience different hardships. Yes, later, right. Absolutely. Like the, the reality check that that poor girl that said that to you is is facing. She might be learning from this now, hopefully one over the other one that that's how life is. Maybe the dad's always going to be gone. I hope it's not that one. Or two, I want to be with somebody or I want to be the mom who's always going to be around, you know? Um, So there's obviously different challenges for every single person, but you're so right. Like we, at the end of the day, obviously the reality of life is that you're not always going to have everything you want. Sometimes you won't even have everything that you need and that's okay. That's what's going to help grow our character into the people that we're supposed to be. I love what you're saying there too, because Bernier Brown talks about this. What is enough? Mm. We are such a, a thirsty society, you know, thirsty for followers, thirsty for money. I'm thirsty for those things too. I mean, here I am. Yeah. Oh, everybody else is like that. Well, it's, I'd be lying if I said I wouldn't want those things too. Mm-hmm. 
but when is enough and what is enough? Yeah, dude. Okay. That makes me think of how businesses nowadays, the way that they're designed, especially the larger ones, is that um, the idea of infinite growth, the expectation that every single year they should be growing, that mm. there should never be, they should never be, um, what's the opposite of growth? Uh, they should never be shrinking. They should never have a year of yeah. the same old, same old. They should always keep growing. And that's definitely, I'm sure, has influenced the way that we think on a personal individual level, right? Um, you got these companies like Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, who like provide great services. Don't get me wrong. Like I use their stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, you almost have to in this world. You know, <laughs> and maybe that's kind of part of, a, that's a problem, right? Um, but eventually like there has to be an end to the growth, right? And if there's not, that, that, then that means that the competition, the, the opportunity for small businesses obviously is being taken away and so many different things can come of that. And it, it really brings us back to how much is enough. You know, Amazon seems to be taking over new industries every single day. It's like, wh when are they going to just be Amazon instead of being Rite Aid, Uber, Whole Foods, you know, like just right. buying out all these places. Like what is Amazon? Amazon at this point is basically everything. Um, obviously I'm picking on them, but, but you're so right, man. Um, I kind of went on a little tangent there, but yes, when is enough enough? And that's yeah. something that I have to balance so often with myself as I, as I desire financial security, like I mentioned earlier, as I desire more listeners on my podcast, but what number will I be satisfied with if I'm not satisfied now? That's the question. What a, what a rich question. And, and, you know, I, I propose that question to myself and to listeners as well. I mean, what is enough? You know what the, when I talk to kids, one thing that I know it just hits them in where it, where they want to feel, you know, is mm. when I say you are good enough. Cause I deal with all these problem kids, you know, teachers are like, Oh my God, can you talk to this kid? <laughs> right. I'm like, yeah, no problem. Set him down. You know? And, and I just, I sit there and I listen to what they're saying and they talk about, you know, PS five and you know, all this stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, cause I'm just a big kid. Right. I'm like, this is so cool. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then we, you know, and, and as they're telling me about their interests and I am intently listening, things come up of, you know, well, people always fighting in my house and stuff like that. And I just tell them, well, you know, in my eyes, you, you're, you're enough, man. Like you're good enough. Mm. You're cool enough. And I don't know. It's just really, I think it's the message that I wish I heard. Cause you talk about, you got two options, right? You can repeat things or you can change things, right? Mm. You can be like, if say you're just an example, you have an alcoholic parent. Well, you got, I see it as you have two options you can become the parent that you had and repeat those same things, or you can love that parent and decide to do differently. Right. Mm. And be there for your whatever that wasn't there for you. You can be the change. Mm. Yeah. I completely agree, man. I think that an important piece too in there is that for that example, it's like, if you grew up with an alcoholic parent, probably, I don't want to say probably, I don't know the stats behind this, but I imagine that a lot of alcoholic parents are probably abusive too. 
um, you can see from a very young age why somebody would become an alcoholic. Yes. Because there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of heartbreak. There's a lot of difficult things in life. And so as you're choosing the option of not being the alcoholic, it's loving that alcoholic parent and having some empathy for them yes. with which absolutely does not mean that anything that they did was okay. Mm-hmm. It's not. But just having that understanding, having that understanding of they couldn't, that was the choice that they ended up making. And that sucks. But in a sense, I get it. Um, I think you're so right, man. We, we, we have to make that choice to be the change. What's so interesting too in that is I tell people all the time, you become what you hate. Mm. Or you are what you hate. So if you're like, I hate my mom. She's always yelling and stuff. We'll learn to love that because the the potential for you to one day become that is extremely high. But when you mm. love the things, I'm not, you know, I'm talking about as we become older, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a little yeah. bit too much for teenagers to say to them, you just need to love your parent, right? Yeah. They're not there yet. But as you get older, the parts that caused you hurt, try to love them. And then it changes just the way things are, because when you hate them, they have power over you. But when you love them, you have power over them. Mm. That is very wise and is so powerful. And I think, you know, for a lot of people listening to maybe instead of using the word love, we can use the word accept, right? Mm. And I've found that that's something that has been really powerful for me with OCD, for example, right? Yeah. I would always, once I learned I had it, I would demonize it. I would be frustrated that OCD would do the things to me that it does. And then I learned one of the best ways to handle these intrusive thoughts is to accept them for what they are, simply thoughts, right? They don't actually define who I am. And then later, as I continued to heal and continued to learn and had the conversations I needed to have, I was able to learn that demonizing OCD is not going to make it get better. Yes. But accepting it. And in fact, I do agree to, in this case anyways, to love, I, I had to learn to love that OCD because once I got an understanding of what was going on, and obviously this doesn't relate to the alcoholic parent very well. Right. Um, but once I understood that OCD, for example, from an evolution perspective was a, a real, it was a strength. It was, it was used to protect you and your tribe by always being on it and having everything in order and making sure that you guys were all protected and set. Um, Once I learned that it was really my brain just looking out for me, Mm. trying to love me, protect me. I was able to look at it with, with empathy, with understanding, with, with love, man, and, and accept it for what it is. And, and also you've, you've used this sort of, um, I don't want to say the word hindrance, but anyways, OCD, you've Mm -hmm. used what once was maybe a roadblock, a setback into what could potentially be a gift, a healing gift that you can give to others and say, hey, man, this is what I've been through and this is what I'm doing with it. Mm. So I'm looking at the time and I'm like, ooh, we're at 40 minutes. Man, that, that felt like 10. I know, man. I'm with you. This has been great. So- how can uh, t- tell us one last time where we can listen to you, name your show, and how to get yeah. there? I appreciate you letting me do that. So the show is called Strength Through Vulnerability, and uh, I've had people try to find it and say they can't find it, and it's usually because 
they type through um, the real English spelling way, <laughs> but the way I spell it is T H R U to keep right. it a little shorter. Um, so it's called Strength Through Vulnerability. I have a website called Strength Through T H R U dot com, um, and you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Strength Through Vulnerability. So, and please reach out to me. I love connecting with new people. It's a uh, it's one of my favorite things. Awesome, awesome. And and you're based out of uh, Boston. Uh, very close. I'm based out of Portland, Maine. So like two hours away from that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's well, people like, know Boston better than they know Portland, Maine probably. So maybe right, I should have right. said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tommy, thank you so much uh, for being on the show and uh, we'll keep in touch. Sounds great, Rob. I, I really appreciate the time and can't wait to have you on my show, man. I appreciate you, my brother. Absolutely. You take care. Once again, that was Tommy Dalbog from Strength Through Vulnerability, sharing with us his own struggles with mental health and anxiety, and how deciding to share his story led to his own empowerment. And it makes me think about myself and perhaps you, the listener, and uh, in the importance of us sharing our stories with someone that we trust and what that does for us. So it, it leaves me with the question, is there something that you're holding on to that you need to share? And if so, just imagine how much better that'll make you feel. I hope you have the courage to do that, to have that difficult conversation, but that meaningful one all at the same time. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.